Now, as we begin today, I imagine this internal conversation happening in many minds as you look at the notes, uh, either, either online or, uh, or in the bulletin you've got in here, you see the notes there and you pop into this word and you see you've got a sermon titled Propitiation. Here's the train of panicked thought that I imagine is coursing through your head. Something like, oh my goodness, I just convinced the family to come to church to start the new year and that dumbing on stage is teaching a series on doctrine, theology. Doctrine is boring. It is sterile. I wanted my family to have an experience of God. You make a great point, my friend, but hold on a moment. Let me respond to your excellent question, your excellent problem with a story. Story time. Who's ready for story time? Story time. Story today comes from a very, very famous, talented storyteller, a guy named C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis tells this story. He says, and I quote, I remember once when I had been giving a talk to the RAF, an old hard-bitten officer got up and said, I have no use for all that stuff. But mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt him out alone in the desert at night, the tremendous mystery. And that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and, and unreal. Now, Lewis says, in a sense, I quite agreed with that man. I think he probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. In the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic from the beach and then goes and looks at a map of the Atlantic, he'll be turning from something real to something less real, from real waves to a bit of colored paper. But here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experiences just as real as the one you could have from the beach. Only while yours would be a single glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you're content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be more useful than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. He wrote this from England. Now, theology is like the map. Merely learning and thinking about Christian doctrines, if you stop there, is less real and less exciting than the sort of thing my friend got in the desert. Doctrines are not God. They're only a kind of map. But that map is based on the experience of hundreds of people who really were in touch with God, experiences compared with which any thrills or pious feelings you and I are likely to get on our own are very elementary and very confused. And secondly, if you want to get any further, you must use the map as you go to sea. What happened to that man in the desert may have been real. It was certainly exciting, but nothing comes of it. It goes nowhere. In fact, that is just why a vague religion all about feeling God in nature and so on is so attractive. It's all thrills and no work. It's like watching the waves from the beach. But you will not get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic that way, and you will not get eternal life by simply feeling the presence of God in flowers or music. In other words, he closes with this, theology is practical. If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean you have no ideas about God. It will mean you have a lot of wrong ones bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great many of the ideas about God which were trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected, close quote. 
Dr. Lewis shows why we need both good theology of God and experience of God. Another theologian, uh, Dr. Pelican of Yale, uh, Yaroslav Pelican had this great quote uh, about the same time period. He said, a map, even a good map, is no substitute for a trip. But studying the map is usually the best way to prepare for the trip. Close quote. Isn't that well said? To those two geniuses, I dare add just one thought. And here's my only update to their thoughts. Our maps today are based on satellite images, right? They are based on data that no human could physically see. In the same way, Scripture is given by God from His view. And doctrine based on the Bible is the exact map needed for a successful life adventure. All God's people said... In other words, doctrine, when you walk in and you see it's on doctrine, propitiation, think this, doctrine is useful, it is cheerful, it is God-directed and human experience. Doctrine is an animated part of life that cries out, I'm the map! And you parents can see this coming, can't you? Think of biblical doctrine like this. Who's the guy you need to know when you've got a place to go? What's my name? Come on, everybody. I'm the map. I'm the map. I'm the map. I'm the map. One more. Oh, that'll be in your head all day. That's awesome. Now, let's pull out our own maps and get started on our adventure, shall we? Open your Bible to 1 John. It's near the very end of your Bible, like the fifth book from the end. 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 10. 1 John 4, 10. Here's our map for our adventure. Come sail away. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is very rare, but I actually think there's another translation that is superior to the one I enjoy most, the Christian Standard Bible. I think the ESV does a slightly better job with this. So look up here. The English Standard Version says it this way. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. Everybody say it on the count of three. It's your fancy word for the day. Propitiation. One, two, three. Propitiation Propitiation for our sins. The big idea is found there in our notes. You'll see your notes say God provides propitiation for our sins. This is an amazing concept. The biblical doctrine of propitiation is explained right here. The original term we render propitiation is a really famous Greek word, elasmos. Helasmos uh, was a term for um, appeasement. It was for paying the price, paying the price for someone who had been offended. So if, if your cow broke my fence, uh, the Old Testament says, when it uses the Greek word elasmos in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that's not too big a deal. But if your cow has continually broken my fence and you don't tie up your cow, you don't do anything about it, then do you know what Moses' law says? It says elasmos. You have to make propitiation. You have to pay me because I'm offended. You have, you have wronged me and kept wronging me, okay? Uh, more importantly, this word when it appeared in ancient language, hilasmos, if somebody offended a god, then the right kind of payment had to be made. A, a propitiation had to be made. The god had to be paid off, had to be appeased. But the Bible turns that whole idea on its head. Look, look up here. Look at the diagram of this thought. Oh my goodness, now he's doing grammar. Hush, just look. Take a look. Look at the slide. Now look, we have loved direct object God. What's that word? Not. No, we have not loved God. But he, God the Father is the implication in the context, loved, transitive verb. What's the direct object? 
us. That's mind-blowing. We have not loved God, but He loved us anyway. There's more. And He sent His Son, another direct object, and here's the great modifier phrase right here, to be the propitiation, intransitive, to be. So propitiation is the same as what? Son. The Son is the propitiation. Is there, look carefully, is there any mortal making any payment in that scenario? No. This is an utterly radical idea of hilasmos, of propitiation. God the Father, God the Son are making the payment for humans. To really understand how radical this is, we need some context. And I think to get the context, we need another story. We need a story that contains the first ever use of the word hilasmos. This is the first example I can find of it anywhere in world literature. Story time. You ready for story time? <clears throat> a long time ago, in a land far, far away. Actually, it was 632 B.C. in Greece. <clears throat> but it sounds better to say a long time ago, far, far away. 632 B.C. in Greece. There was an Olympic champion, very famous guy. Olympic champions were very famous. A guy named Kylon. And Kylon led a revolt. He, he led an insurrection in his home city-state of Athens. It failed. The insurrection failed. Kylon, which is pretty funny for an Olympic champion, was pretty much a coward, and he ran away. He fled. He left a hundred of his followers, <clears throat> excuse me, left a hundred of his followers who were there in the city, and of course it had failed, so they were running for their lives, and they went and hid up in the temple of Athena. This is a new temple of Athena. We don't really know what the old one looked like, but it was a generation before this, two generations before this, and they hid up in the temple. Now temples were sacred places. You couldn't hurt people there. So the rulers of the city surrounded the temple, and they convinced the Kylonians, these followers of Kylos, to uh, Kylon, to, to come out of the temple and come down and stand trial. And they promised them, this is important, they promised them safe passage down from the temple. All right? So the followers of Kylon agreed to come out of the temple. But Megacles, is that a great name? Meg Megacles. It sounds like a transformer. Uh, Megacles, <clears throat> he was the most powerful of all the city oligarchs, the, uh, the families that ruled Athens. Megacles violated the safe passage rule. And he, and he and his family, as soon as they got outside the city of Athens, he and his family and his followers slaughtered every one of the Kylonians, killed them. Uh, by the way, 2016, look up here. City of Athens, uh, construction going on outside of where the old city walls would have been, an area called uh, Paleophaliro, and, um, and they were digging a parking lot. And as they were digging for this parking lot, they found a mass grave mass grave. The wounds on these people, by the way, the wounds are very, very different. You can tell a lot by what cuts are on bones. These are not the wounds of people who died in battle. These people were slaughtered. They were murdered. In fact, you can see right here, many of them are still shackled. Guess, guess what the bones, how old they are. They date to 630 BC, the time of Chilon. This appears to be the the Kylonians that were murdered by Megacles. Now, according to the Greek historians, Herodotus and Thucydides, and especially Plutarch, this violation of promise and of law angered the gods. So Megacles' family was infected with a miasma. A miasma is a, a, a pollution, a, a disease kind of thing. The people of Athens exiled the whole family. That, that picture I showed you earlier that said Megacles on it, that was an ostracon. That was a piece of pottery somebody wrote his name on to vote for them to be uh, to be kicked out of the city was found not too long ago. They said, they said we got to kick Megacles' family out because the epidemic is, is destroying the whole city. But it didn't work. The epidemic, it, it, that didn't stop the infection at all. In fact, it kept spreading. So the city of Athens decided to 
literally clear the air by contacting this fellow, a guy named Epimenides. He was from Canossus on the island of Crete. By the way, Epimenides is an important name for you Christians. He wrote a number of poems, only uh, scraps of which survive, but one of his poems is quoted twice in the New Testament. Uh, he's, not, he's not inspired of God. The poem's used as a negative illustration <laughs> by both Luke and Paul. If you want to look it up, it's in the book of Acts and in uh, Titus. Anyway, Epimenides was this, this famous guy. He came to Athens, and here's what you need to know. He performed all kinds of special little rituals, all kinds of formulas. He did secret blood rituals that, that, uh, for the Megacles family. He did secret little rituals for the city. And he ensured, this is important, he ensured that everyone had to follow the exact right actions he laid down if they were going to stop the epidemic. And through these special works that he did that were known only by the secrets of the gods, Epimenides managed to convince the gods to remove the miasma plague. Now, Plutarch wrote that Epimenides was the helasmos, the propitiation for Athens. Epimenides, by the way, to wrap it on the story, Epimenides became famous. The Megacles family was allowed to come back in. Athens went through a city government change. Uh, the beginning of democracy started under a guy named Solon, but that's a story for another time. Now, please note these aspects of the story. Look up here and catch these aspects. This is what Elosmos meant when it was used. The deity is motivated only by offense against the law. There's no care for the people. The law is broken, therefore the deity is angry. Secondly, who initiates propitiation? Who does? Humans. Always humans. That's what it meant. And human formula and human ritual and human sacrifice, they make the way for humans to be propitiation. That, my friends, is the base human view of how things get done. Miasma is removed. Sin is paid for by human sacrifice following particular specific little rituals. Now, of course, in light of that, you are thinking in your, um, in your Epimenides imitation, that's just old world stuff. Nobody thinks like that anymore. Really? Are you so certain? Because I contend that pagan formula is, is not only alive and well, I think it is dominating most of world thought today. For example, in China, there is a new state-approved Bible that is in the works. It's going to be required for use by all churches in China. The parts we're seeing on this are very, very intriguing. The one that concerns me maybe the most is how this new translation changes the biblical doctrine of propitiation and puts it back into an old pagan one that I think would very much have pleased Epimenides. Let me share with you a report. This comes from an insider scholar. This is one of the one of these scholars in China who is working on the translation, he shall remain nameless, but he sent out this note through different channels. He said, the official translator in charge told me, and I quote, we feel the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ is too narrow. We instead need a Bible that is promoting justification by, by love and doing good deeds. See what that is? That's the humans paying the price. He goes on. The Bible should show that Communist Party heroes doing many good deeds should be accepted into heaven on the basis of their works, close quote. That is the pagan idea of propitiation attempting to be rewritten into the Bible, which turns propitiation on its head. In Scripture, who makes the payment, humans or God? The pagan idea of propitiation is alive and it is active. Think, think about 
Think about the COVID-19 miasma, right? Taking precautions is very wise during a pandemic, right? Please say right. Yes, okay, yeah. Each person has to follow wisdom guided by their conscience. You have to do what, what God guides you is wise and right. But have you noticed how easily human-based propitiation can sneak into our thinking? That's what explains the shrill voices you heard screaming, everybody has to follow directions exactly or the miasma won't go away. Epimenides would be so proud of people like Governor Brown of Oregon when she said, and I quote, it is a duty to call the police and report neighbors not following my orders. <laughs> the police she defunded, by the way. Anyway, uh, which is really funny. They didn't answer. Um, that, that's, that just slips into our thinking. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. It's just what happens. Consider this. Consider this. What is the only sure way to win an argument or get what you want in the modern world? There's one sure way. Be offended, right? If you're offended, you always win. By the way, that is a miserable way to live. Isn't it? It, 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 being offended all the time is so miserable. What a wretched way to live. Why do we do it? Why do so many people not just other people, us. Why do we pull out the offended card whenever we want to, to get our way? It's a miserable thing. Why? Because we think of propitiation like pagans, not like Christians. Instead of being delighted in the payment that the Lord has made for me and in that peace addressing forcefully and lovingly the rights and wrongs of my time. Instead of that, it seems more reasonable to our neo-pagan minds to demand payment from humans who offend us. Sadly, and here's the saddest part on a practical level, that, that pagan way will never satisfy. Never. God alone provides real propitiation for our sins, and He expects us to live in light of that. And the plot thickens when we understand what motivates God. God is motivated by love for humans. Love! Contrast that with paganism. No pagan god ever sacrificed himself or herself to atone for someone who had offended them. That's why the great battle in 1 Kings 18, which you can look up on your own, that's why it is so interesting. The priests of Baal are trying to get their god to respond to them to get what they want. And so as their last desperate act, what do they do? They've been dancing, they've been singing, they've been, they've been crying out to him for hours and hours and hours. And finally, what do they do? They cut themselves. Yeah, that's right. They cut, they are making the sacrifice to be just like these, these Sufi uh, Muslims do every year in, in our age. They, they're desperately trying to appease the God. It would never have occurred to them that the true God would act out of compassion, that he would care about humans. But that is exactly what the real sovereign triune God does. He becomes the propitiation for humans and he does it because of love. Now think about this. John wrote this. John wrote this while living in a very pagan Greco-Roman society. This paragraph had to drop like a bombshell among those readers. The Greek word agapao is the highest form of love. It is self-sacrificial love. No human ever first loved God. We don't and can't provide a good enough sacrifice to pay for our sins. But God loves us. In his agapao, God made a way for us in Jesus' sacrifice. All God's people said... And that's why God the Son is the propitiation, which is the headline atop the right side of your notes. Look over there. God the Son is called the propitiation. Now, this is one of my very rare disagreements with the CSB, the Christian Standard Translation. They say atoning sacrifice, which is true. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, but that's not what this word is saying. The Greek hilasmos means a propitiation, a payment for sin. Je Jesus is human. 
But he's more than merely human. He, God the Son, is propitiation. He makes a way for the expiation of our sin. He makes the only way for one to be holy and thus acceptable to God, free of the miasma of sin. This is amazing. And, and, it's, and it's even deeper than that. Think about this. If, if you, I've told you to tie up that cow 47 times, and your cow keeps breaking down my fence, right? Now, according to, to the law, Moses' law and others like it, uh, you have to make propitiation. You have to pay for the offense of my fence keeps getting broken because you're not taking care of your stuff, right? When, when, when she makes payment, take care of that cow. When she makes payment, our legal relationship is okay. But what's our interpersonal, what's our communal relationship like? Is it good? This is not rocket science. Is it good? No, it's not. No, I keep telling you, you got to bring in and tie up your cow, right? Yeah, sorry, steer. Uh, anyway, um, so, so think about this. Christianity is the absolutely only kind of thought in all of world history that deals with both the legal and the relational aspects of our offense. You see, no pun intended on offense, the... the when we offend God, and we do, and we are, when we do so, Jesus' propitiation doesn't just pay for the legal aspect of it. That's what humans try to do. It pays for the relational aspect because he makes the payment. So if, you're, if your steer keeps breaking down my fence, what if I make the payment to fix the fence for you? Then our relationship is different, right? That's what the Bible does when it turns helosmos on its head. Our annual vision is wonder. And this propitiation is surely a thing of wonder. God, the Son, makes the payment. He becomes a propitiation for people. It is the exact opposite of the worldly norm. God, the Son, is propitiation. This is mind-blowing. And it fits something that God told Isaiah he would do. Way back, Isaiah chapter 29, look at this. I will do an amazing thing for these people, an absolutely extraordinary deed. Wise men will have nothing to say. The sages will have no explanations God died for sinful people. Amen? Now, sometimes, I need to cover this real quickly, sometimes people take this to a weird place where, where God the Father is depicted as angry and vengeful and Jesus placates the Father in the sacrifice, standing between us and our angry God. I run into this oddity often enough, and by the way, it has its roots way, way back in paganism. Um, I run into this often enough that I think we need to address it. Let me very gently say about this way of looking at the Father, um, that's nuts. Is that gentle enough? That's nuts, folks. Think. God, Father, Son, and Spirit is one. Each person of the triune God is rightly angry over sin. Each one. Each is amazingly loving towards sinners. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, this is one of those wacky ideas that our forebears thought about and wisely rejected. In our notes, take a look. You can read how a theologian named D.A. Carson, I think, really well answered this question. He says, when we use the language of propitiation, we're not to think that the Son, full of love, offered himself and thereby placated, rendered propitious, the Father, full of wrath. The picture is much more complex. It is that the Father, full of righteous wrath against us, nevertheless loved us so much that he sent his Son. Perfectly mirroring the Father's words and deeds, the Son stood over against us in wrath. Quick thought here. This is why in the Bible you keep running into this little phrase, um, uh, beware the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is, is not a tame lion. He is, he is angry about sin, and he should be. So he stands against us in wrath. Yet, 
obedient to his father's commission, he offered himself for us on the cross. He did this out of love for both his father, whom he obeys, and for us, whom he redeems. Thus, God is necessarily, this is so well said, he's necessarily both the subject and the object of propitiation. He provides the propitiating sacrifice. He is the subject, and he himself is propitiated. He is the object. That is the glory of the cross, close quote. In summary, in a complete reversal of every other system of thought, the Bible claims that God loves undeserving people and provides propitiation for our sins via the sacrifice of God the Son. Now, let me show you a simple way to remember this. Some of you uh, can just let this pass by, but some of you have written me lately about the different words we've done in our wonderful word series. Here's how they interrelate on this subject. When you're reading the Bible and you run into the word atonement, atonement is looking sinward. It's focusing on sin. Uh, so it's like the, the red light that you ran, the wrong thing that you did, okay? Jesus purchased believers back from the market of sin. That's when you see atonement. That's what it's talking about. Reconciliation, one of the words we studied, is focusing on the human. So this is, this is like looking at me and, and the fact that I am separated. Sinners are separated. In, uh, there's a holiness gulf between us and God, and that gulf is, is bridged by Jesus. That's when you see the word reconciliation in your Bible. When you see the word propitiation, that's more focusing on God. It's like the price of the ticket. Somebody has to pay that. Somebody's got to pay that price. And God, in propitiation, pays the offense price for sinners. And all these doctrines come to humans via God's grace through a person's faith in Jesus. Read with me. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. You take the underlined parts. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Amen. Now, there are other connected ideas in the Bible, other terms that interplay with propitiation. We haven't time today to study all those. We want to wrap up with this. Let's look at the one other appearance of Helosmos in the New Testament. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. So just turn a page back in your Bible. 1 John chapter 2, and I'm again going to read from the English Standard Version. My little children, verse 1. I'm writing these, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And of course, in reaction to that, I know what you're thinking. In your, um, <clears throat> in your Yaroslav Pelikan imitation, you are saying, nice word, propitiation. Important even, good word. But what difference propitiation make in my daily life, Right? Yaroslav was from Russia, very good thinker. Okay, great question, Dr. Pelikan. Thank you. Here's the answer. God provides for us every day through propitiation. Look, look at this, look at this. John, the, the author whom God used, the only author he used in the New Testament to expound on, on helasmos, on propitiation, is the same writer who emphasizes that we who believe in Jesus become adopted children of God. Re read with me. 1 John chapter 3. Let's read it line by line here all together. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. Okay, <clears throat> listen, I know, reading responsibly, you kind of, everybody gets a tone together, but do you, do you realize what you just read? We are. So when you get to that, and we are, you hit that conjunction, and then that little clause, we are, I want to hear some emotion boys and girls, okay? This is not just a map. It's a map with the ocean. Emotion, all right? You ready? 
<laughs> Let's try that again. All right. Verse 1, see what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are, dear friends, we are God's children now. Amen, amen. The Bible, <clears throat> this is so cool. Propitiation chapter 2, propitiation chapter 4 of 1 John, and then in chapter 3, the status of an adopted child. That's telling us that God relates our propitiation, the fact that he pays the price for us, to our status as his adopted children. We are no longer outside. We are taken inside God's family because of his love. Now, speaking of that, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine. I'd like to introduce you to Ayantu Wink. Uh, Ayantu, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. Ayantu, are you back there, buddy? Come on out. Come on. Have your, you're right here. Yay. Give her a hand. There you go, beautiful. Okay. Ayantu, thanks for coming. You are so kind. To do. Hold, it, hold it right up there so they can hear you at home. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Now, I'm going to show a picture. I got a picture of you when you were just a little baby. You were tiny. Isn't that a great picture? I love that picture. Okay, now, Ayantu, this picture, it represents so, so much. I mean, there's a lot of love and sweetness in it. But you and I know that it also represents a huge price. When your parents, when they adopted you, they, they had to pay a massive price to get you. How, how does that make you feel? Very, very good. Yeah? Special? Mm-hmm. It should. Now, um, let me show another picture. When, when your parents adopted you, that day they loved you, right? They loved you that day. And that was the only day they loved you. I mean, they lived then, and then they were kind of done, done with you no, after that. No, they loved me every day. Really? Okay, how do, you, how do you tell us some ways you know they love you every day? How do you know? Mm, easy ways. Okay. Like what? So every time my, mom, my dad takes me to bed and raises me up. Uh-huh. And what is he, does he read you a story? Yes. Does he kiss you goodnight? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Does he pray with you? Yeah. Oh, that's precious. Okay, what about, um, do they give you any chores? Yes. Mm. How could, okay, this is going to sound weird, but how could those be a way that shows they love you? Giving you, you chores. you family, you'll get used to it. That's well said. When you live in a family, you get used to it. It is part of being in a family, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's good. Uh, what about, do you ever do anything wrong? Me and my brother do some songs <laughs> together. Uh, Erica, you just got off the hook. Apparently, you don't do things wrong. Her older sister is, is perfect, and we do that already. Um, so when you and your brother do things wrong, what do, you, what do your parents do to show they love you? What do they do? Um, my mom, every night, she kisses me good bed when I'm about to raise my, even, my dad up. Even after you've done things wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, really? How about that? So, so she always loves you. Does she help you do wrong things? No. Yeah, good. We're proud of you. Thank you, Mom. All right. Get, can you give her a hand, please? Thank you, Yantu. That was awesome. Brilliant. It's part of a family. You get used to it. That's awesome. Did you see what she was pointing out? A loving parent guides you away from what is bad for you. That's why God's love guides us away from sin. Because we have received atonement, we can live differently. I, I can and should engage with my Heavenly Father all the time. I should, I should let Him love on me at bedtime. I should spend time reading His story with Him. I don't belong in the miasma of sin anymore. Whenever one of my children has acted like a fool and, and wandered into sin, 
which they have done, there is this moment that comes where, where the kid wakes up and realizes that this is absurd, and they repent of their sin, and they turn back to their Lord. Now, those wonderful times always lead to lots and lots and lots of long discussions, right? In those long conversations, every single time I have heard some version of this statement, the kid has looked at me and said, Dad, I don't belong there. That, that isn't really who I am. We need to be that wise. Thanks to propitiation, we are children of God. John says in chapter 2 that it's important we act like it. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not, what? Sin. This truth inspired the Christian poet Rich Mullins to pen a classic poem that became a really good song called Sometimes by Step. He said, Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways, and step by step you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. For those who trust Jesus, God provides for us every day, step by step. His love guides us. And when we do fall, we rely on our advocate, our propitiation. Look at it again. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. One of the saddest parts of what I do is that occasionally I get a call from a member of the church or from one of our pastors who's talked to a member of the church. And this poor family has seen someone they love thrown into jail because of uh, some stupid sin. Now, that painful scenario when somebody has a loved one in jail almost always involves, in fact, I think it always involves this question, some form of this question. Should we bail them out? Wayne, should we bail them out? The answer is never a simple yes or no. The reality is that Christians must not facilitate sin, period. We cannot do anything that will help someone, even someone we love, do wrong. At the same time, we must always love, period. That sinner must be loved unconditionally, just as God loves us sinners. And if you look at your text, Jesus is the perfect example of this. Does Jesus countenance sin? Does he approve sin? Yes or no? Please say no. No, he does not. And yet, and yet, he who does not approve sin is still an advocate for the sinner. Ayantu sat here and, and said, yeah, I, I do wrong. What do they do to show you that my mom comes and kisses me goodnight? Even after she sins? Yes, even when she, especially when she sins. Jesus paid for our sin. That's what he lost most means. It's like, it's like the old story, you know the old story of the judge who has the person in front of him that he cares about, but he refuses, he's not going to violate what's right, and he refuses to, to lift the, uh, the payment, that this, the appropriate payment this person defendant has to make for their mistake. But after the court is over, the judge takes off his robe, he goes down, and he pulls out his wallet, and he makes the payment himself. That, that's Jesus. He paid for our appropriate fine as our propitiation. That's why we can rely on him even when we still sin. Rich Mullins continued his poem this way. He said, sometimes I think of Abraham, how, how one star he saw had been lit for me. He was a stranger in this land. I am that no less than he. And on this road to righteousness, sometimes the climb can be so steep. I may falter in my steps, but never beyond your reach. Oh God, you are my God. All God's people said...
We may falter indeed in our steps, but we can fall on God himself, our propitiation and advocate. And that is news worth sharing. We share this news with the whole world. Look again at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is not a statement of universalism. The context makes it clear that Jesus is the propitiation only for those who trust him. This is a reminder that his sacrifice applies to everyone who believes, no matter who, what, or where, or when they are. So we're missing the point if we don't share Jesus' good news with the whole world. And this is why you and I support so many full-time missionaries around the globe. This, this is why you and I share the gospel all the time around our own area. Jesus cares about the whole world. Think, think of it like this. What is your favorite Christmas present? Think, think back on the last Christmas and raise your hands. I'd like some volunteers. Tell me what was the greatest, most glorious gift you received this Christmas. What's something awesome you received? Yes. What does? <laughs> Very, that's awesome. Wife came home. That's brilliant. That is the best ever. What else? What'd you get? Come on, come on, you guys. Come on. What'd you get? What'd you get? What'd you get? Tell me what you got, Ken's. Clothes. Very nice. Clothes. She got clothes, of course. I mean, she's a lovely high school girl. Of course, she got clothes. Somebody else. Come on, middle section. You're letting me down here. Come on. Yeah. A puppy? What kind of puppy? A border collie. I grew up with a border collie. I was so inventive as a child at six, I named him Snoopy. Um, yeah, and that dog could jump six foot high stockade fence in one bound in our backyard and go back to the creek where all the kids played. And no joke, every night about 5.30 when all the moms are saying, come in, it's supper time, whatever, Snoopy would vault over and herd us, would seriously, would round all the kids, be nipping at us, rounding us all out of the creek and moving us back up home. Isn't that why? Well, I'm sorry, that was free. That didn't have anything to do with the sermon. Anyway, um, Okay, think about those gifts. What is the best way to enjoy that gift, to multiply the wonder of this amazing gift? The best way to increase your gift is to use it to bless others, right? So you, so you share with others. You let other people play with your puppy. You let your sister wear your clothes. Wait, she's not big. Your mom wear your clothes. She's the right size. There you go. You let your mom. Yeah, that's good. Okay, yeah. This is what we do. When, when my sweetheart, when Jana got her favorite gift this year, which was a new uh, toy Christmas train, a Lego train, no less, all the little kids in our neighborhood and, and other little kids would come to our house, and she would let them play with it. Play with it. Have you seen the Lego movie? You understand the struggle here? It's real, right? What might they do? They might break it. And those are Lego pieces. They might tear it. They might go too fast and play. But she always let them play with it. Why? Because Jana knows that she is blessed to be a blessing. That's not for her. That train is for her. It's wonderful. But it's for her to increase by sharing the wonder. This amazing gift of propitiation that you have if you're a believer in Jesus, it's not just for you to enjoy. You are blessed in order to be a blessing. So let's share it. Amen? Pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, that we, will, that we will let you guide us away from sin, that we will step by step let you lead us because you are our propitiation. You, you paid the price for us, and we're, we are children of God. 
Help us live like it. And Lord, when we sin, and we do, please guide us to confess it and to fall on you, to fall on our advocate, our propitiation, Jesus, who pays the price and resurrects us with him from the dead. And thirdly, Lord, I pray that we share the good news. This is really, really tragic if we only enjoy this warmth in our hearts, if we only enjoy it like our special puppy and we don't share it with anybody else. Open our eyes for opportunities to tell. Everyone we meet is from a worldview that thinks that we have to pay the price. It is the human way to think. You turn propitiation on its head and it's the biggest story ever. I pray we will share it. And speaking of sharing it, Lord, I, I pray for anybody, anybody who is studying with me today, wherever you may be. Friend, if you have never trusted Jesus as Savior, He loves you. That's what motivates Him. And you don't deserve it, neither do I, but He loves you. And He's calling you to come to Him, to respond to Him. Do so right now. Trust Jesus as your propitiation, the only sacrifice that is enough. Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that if you trust him, that could be the greatest Christmas present ever, that you would be an adopted child of God. Receive that gift right now. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior and you're in the auditorium, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Good for you. If you're, if you're elsewhere, we're so glad to study with you. Please chat with your, uh, with your host. Fill out the card that you see on there. Let me know. We want to pray for you and rejoice with you also. Father, we love you and I thank you for all these Christians. Please, please let us step by step follow our dear Father. In his name we pray. Amen.